10. Uh, then we're going to go to uh, Genesis and Romans and uh, two more places after that uh, on our journey this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the many blessings that we have in him. Most of all, we thank you for forgiveness of our sins while we were yet still sinners. And so, Father, I thank you that uh, you have given us the glorious gospel. Lord, I pray that it would impact our lives in such a way that we would take it to the ends of the earth. And, Father, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning, uh, that it would forever change the way uh, that we think and feel. Lord, I pray that it would uh, work in our hearts. Father, I pray most of all this morning that you would feed your people, and I pray you would use me to do it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been here, we've been going through a uh, series on the gospel. We walked through the gospel prayer in about four or five weeks, uh, what we were calling the gospel prayer, all of which is online if you, uh, if you need to catch up. Uh, and we talked about how the gospel influences a bunch of different areas of our life. So once we walked through the gospel prayer, uh, we spent some time and we talked about uh, how... Uh, the gospel impacts our finances. We talked about how the gospel, uh, or James did, how the gospel impacts your family. Uh, and we talked about some, some different things that just that the gospel, once you understand it, once you've applied it to your life, that it changes your outlook on life. And so this morning, uh, what I want to do as our, as our last Sunday uh, in this series we're calling the Gospel Series, uh, I want to talk how the, about how the gospel affects the good old boy. All, right, all of you have, have met great people. Uh, Windsor houses some of the finest folks I've ever met, uh, some of the most generous folks I've ever met, and some of those folks that are good, that are generous, are very kind, are as lost as a ball in high weeds, and I say that with as much compassion as I can, and I, what I want to do is I want you to see how the gospel works in someone's life who we consider a good person. And so, Ultimately, what you're going to see is not to give you a bait and switch. Ultimately, what you're going to see is that when we give someone the title good, we're issuing them uh, a title to their life that God never gave them. And so I want to jump into the scriptures uh, to kind of illustrate the point here. So let's jump into Mark chapter 10 over in verse 17. And this is a story that we have uh, gotten a lot of mileage out of, but we haven't spent much time uh, in the section of this passage that we're going to really hit home on. And so this passage is about the rich young ruler. We're in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says this, as he was setting out on a journey, that's Jesus, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Verse 22, but at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving For he was one who owned much property. And so you find that the rich young ruler isn't willing to do what it takes to follow Christ. And we've walked through this passage before that these are the last of the Ten Commandments. And so the man thinks that he's done all these and he's shining a light that he hasn't 
put God in the position that God needs to be in his life. He says he's kept the commandments, which if you read through them, you realize that there's no way he's kept those commandments. But God didn't even touch on the first four commandments, which deal with your relationship with God. But the point of today is that when the man walks up to Jesus, he calls him good teacher. And as I kind of stewed on this passage through the week, I thought, you know, and this isn't because of any sort of Greek or Hebrew exposition. This is because of just the way this thing reads. I bet that Jesus took a long pause after verse 19. And so I'm going to read through it again. So the young man runs up to Jesus and he kneels before him and he asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And my thoughts are that there was a long, awkward pause here. Because Jesus wanted this man to realize that no one was good except for God. Jesus didn't deny that he was a good teacher. So at this point in the Gospel of Mark... Jesus wants this man to stew on and to realize that no one's good except God. And he wants him to realize that he himself, Jesus, is God. And so what do you do with this statement? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. If you go over uh, to the book of Genesis in chapter 3, I want you to see why this statement, no one is good except for God alone, is a fact. You see, we have this this mindset that as long as as people are better than we are, as long as they don't fall below a certain standard, that they're a good person. If they look out for the poor, if they feed and shelter the homeless, if they give things to charitable causes, that they're they're good people. They're just inherently good. And brothers and sisters, nothing could be farther from the truth. People from the second that they're born are inherently bad. And this is not popular whatsoever. So I would just imagine that none of you mothers took time to teach your children how to lie, cheat, and steal, and how to uh, pour on the tears when they had gotten in trouble to try to get out of trouble. Like, you didn't spend any time teaching your kids that. They just naturally did that. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, my kid never did that, I have another kid. And uh, when when your two kids get together, you will realize that... Uh, Real quickly that they have more of the devil in them to begin with than they do Jesus. And so it's our job as parents to instruct them in godliness. And it's our job to teach them that the heart is deceitfully wicked. And you don't get to do whatever your heart wants. You hear all of these stories where people say, follow your heart, follow your heart, follow your heart. That is garbage. Don't follow your heart. Follow the Lord in all things. He'll curve the interest of your heart, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. But you don't follow your heart, you follow the Lord. And then let him shape your heart, then he gives you the desires of your heart. There's, you have to do it in the right order though. And so you say, well, why is everyone a sinner? Why is everyone not good? And the answer is in Genesis chapter 3. And so we start with uh, the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, let me just do a little background, that God has already created everything. He's looked at it and he said it's good and he's rested on the seventh day. And so an unspecified amount of time has taken place between God saying everything was good and everything is, is done being created in this story. So we don't know if it's five years, five days, five seconds, 500 years, a million years. We don't have any idea how long... Things had been created before Adam and Eve 
uh, are tempted here. And so the serpent comes along, craftier than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so right here in the book of Genesis Chapter 3, you have sin entering into the world. And what's the first sin? There's a lot of jokes to be made about the woman eating the fruit. There's a lot of jokes to be made about the cowardliness of the man. But the bottom line is that Satan gave them a lie. Satan told them that, well, Satan gave them a partial truth. He says, from the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the temptation for the woman is that she sees that there's nothing wrong with the outside of the fruit. And then this verse struck me this week. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, this is the middle of verse 6, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And so the temptation for Adam and Eve was to be like God. And so they eat from the tree. And then they sin. And God says, as surely as you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And you have seen that punishment take place over and over and over in every single person's life that you have known who has died. So much so that when you keep flipping in the book of Genesis, you get to a genealogy. And the first genealogy that you come on, you're bored. But the point of the genealogy is the very last three words of each sentence. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And so the whole purpose of that genealogy isn't just to trace Adam's family. It's to show you that sin has made its way through everybody since Adam. And everybody except two people so far have died. Right? And if you go over to the book of Romans, Paul lays out something very simple for us in the book of Romans. This is Romans chapter 5. You're welcome to turn there. But I'm in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And the reason that when you hold that baby in your arms, that that baby isn't good. Now listen, I'm not making less of babies, okay? Like, I like babies. They're cute. Uh, to some extent, they're very innocent looking. We're talking spiritually speaking here. Like... That baby is cute and beautiful to the eyes, but inside is a basket case, okay? Spiritually speaking, the baby needs to be saved. And so all of this is adding up. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So what he's saying here is that the second a baby is born, that baby is destined to die at some point, right? Whether he lives 5, 10, 20, 100, 120 years, because of sin, all of us are going to die. And that sin isn't just because you sinned or committed a sin. It's because sin has been passed down to you through Adam. So your great, 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 great grandfather Adam sinned. And he passed that down to you. And whether you hypothetically live a perfect life or not, you're going to die because of your sin that you inherited. Everybody with me? 
And so when that man comes up to Jesus, that rich young ruler, he comes up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God. Because hopefully you realize that your inherited sin, in addition to whatever sins you've committed since you've been able to, that keeps you from being a good person, no matter what actions you have done, no matter how much you've given to the poor, no matter how many kids you've taken hunting, no matter how many fishing tournaments you've won, you cannot be good because of your sin. Everybody with me? Okay. Make sure we're all on the same sheet of music. And so... What I want to do is I want to go over to the book of Isaiah and I want to look at a guy who was presumably a good guy. Like hopefully we would all say that Isaiah, the prophet, before he was a prophet was probably a pretty stand up guy, right? Like in the limited amount of knowledge that I have of Isaiah, it doesn't seem like he was an ex-con. It doesn't seem like uh, the Lord busted him out of jail to be a servant. It doesn't seem like he rode with hell's angels. God radically saved him and then called him to be a prophet, right? Like this is a guy who we probably considered pretty top-notch guy, and then God called him to be a prophet. And so he's probably in good standing with God. God's doing some things with him in his life in Isaiah 1 through 5. And then you go over to Isaiah chapter 6. And here's a a Jewish good old boy, right? A good guy. He's been helping the needy. He's been keeping the law. All accounts would say, Isaiah, uh, kids, look at Isaiah. Be like him when you grow up. Don't be like this other guy. And so Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 starts out like this. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. If you remember before Christ, you use events to keep up with dates, right? You don't have a firm date for something. You have events that, uh, that you go back and reference to. And so in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah gets to see the Lord seated on a throne, lofty, exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. Verse two, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings with two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew and one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So he gets to see this great picture of heaven. I've never seen anything that he's talking about. And then the Lord speaks in verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. I've never seen anything like this before. Like, I've read about it in Exodus where the Lord speaks from up on the mountain. The mountain's on fire. People are scared to go to the mountain because the whole thing is shaking. And the Lord tells them to come up and the people go, no, Moses, you go up on the mountain because we're all going to die if we go up there. So you run along, Moses, hear what the Lord has to say, and then you come back to us. Okay, this is two million people. The only time the Old Testament folks are in one accord is when God's on the mountain and they all don't want to go because they're petrified. And this is what's going on. Isaiah is getting to see some of what they saw. And he gets to see into heaven. And what it happens to Isaiah when he gets to see into heaven. Keep in mind that this is a good old boy. This is a guy who's walking with the Lord. He's been called of the Lord to be a servant. Listen to what Isaiah says when he gets to see the realities of who the Lord is. He says, then I said, verse 5, woe is me for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand and he had... 
taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And so what I want you to see, how does the gospel affect the good old boy? When you understand the gospel, when you understand that God sent his son to become a man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, rose from the dead three days later so that you could have eternal life. Like when you get a hold of that, it changes you. It absolutely changes you. And here's Isaiah. Gets to see the Lord. Gets to see a spiritual reality. And what happens to Isaiah when he sees who the Lord really is? This good old boy becomes broken immediately. And what does he become broken over? He becomes broken over his sin. Everybody that I've ever met and led to the Lord, when they got saved, was broken over their sin. And so if there's a good old boy out there, if there's a good old girl out there, and they've never been broken by their sin, we've given them a title that is scripturally wrong. Isaiah, the good old boy, Isaiah's already a prophet when he gets to see this. And Isaiah, when he sees God for who he is, becomes broken. And he says, whoa, I'm ruined because I've seen the Lord and I'm a man of unclean lips. And so he comes to grips with his sinfulness and he realizes that he cannot go on any longer living because of the greatness of God and because of his inadequacies. And every Christian that I've ever met who's walking with the Lord is 100% aware of their inadequacies. I'm riddled with mine. If you were to talk to me and you were to come say, Hey, Pastor Bobby, why should you not go to heaven? I could give you a list a mile long of why I feel inadequate to go to heaven. And then if after the end of that you said, Hey, Pastor Bobby, why are you going to heaven? And the answer is one reason, Jesus. He's the only reason. Because when I stand before God, I realize, wow, when I stand before God and I know who he is and I know who I am, I go, wow, I'm ruined. There's no way that I can stand before God because I'm riddled with faults. But the gospel says that just in the way that that angel came to Isaiah and touched his lips and made him clean, God sent Jesus Christ to this earth and he touched me and he made me clean. And that's why I'm able to stand before God and I'm not absolutely ruined. And if people won't admit, excuse me, if people are banking on their goodness to get into heaven as opposed to them being broken and Jesus touching them and making them clean, they don't have a chance of getting into heaven. Every person that I've ever led to the Lord, every person that I've ever led to the Lord was good people, bad people. I've I've led people to the Lord who worshiped Satan, and I've led people to the Lord who were pretty top-notch good folks. We've seen Jehovah Witnesses come to the Lord, and so there's a pretty good amount of people who have come to the Lord throughout our kind of tenure in ministry, and every single one of them we had to take to Romans chapter 8. So if you're anywhere near the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Because the problem that comes up in every person's life who gets saved is this. They're excited, they're excited, they're excited that the Lord has saved them. And then when the excitement wears off, about two or three weeks after they get saved, almost everybody who I've seen get saved walks through a brief period of what seems like depression. 
And it's because of this. There's no way it's so easy to be saved. There's no way after everything that I've done, all I have to do is step out in faith and receive what Christ has already done for me. There has to be something that I need to do in order to be saved. And each person you tell them, no, Jesus Christ has already paid it all. It's your faith in what he did that saves you. And they go, no, it's got to be too easy. And this is weeks after they get saved. And so you take them to the book of Romans, chapter 8. In the book of Romans, you have to tell these people who are getting saved, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is comforting to them. Because when they get saved, they realize their sinfulness. They realize their frailty. They realize how great God is. And they realize that they've come up short. And when they understand the gospel that Jesus Christ has paid it all, And he's done it all for them and freely given it to them. They just have to accept it in faith. It seems too easy. And if we're going to be honest, the whole series we've talked about in the gospel, it is too easy. Because we didn't do anything to deserve it. We can't do anything to earn it. And we can't even pay God back what he's been done. And so how does sin affect the good old boy? Or excuse me, how does the gospel affect the good old boy? And the reality is, is that unless the good old boy has ever been broken over sin and reached out in faith to Christ and had his life absolutely turned upside down, the good old boy is on his way to hell. And that is a scriptural fact because the scripture says that no one is good, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, you all know it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the reason I preach this sermon, brothers and sisters, is because out of all of the residents of Windsor, many of them are good old boys. And many of them are sitting at home right now. And we need to be a people whose hearts are broken for sinners of all kinds, the good ones and the bad ones. And those are two titles that I just gave them. Not that the scripture gives them. Because the scripture says they're all on a level playing field. That none of them are good. And the only reason there's anything good about any of you who have stepped out in faith and trusted Christ. Is that God imputed Christ's righteousness to you. And that's the only reason there's anything good in you and there's anything good in me. You with me? And so I feel like we've done a a disservice in years gone by when people die that we stand up in church and say how good people were. I feel that that's sometimes a disservice to the spiritual community at large. And I just feel like every once in a while we need to, as a church, just do a gut check and remind all of ourselves that apart from Jesus Christ, nobody is okay. And when people understand the gospel... You can't understand the gospel and stay the same person you were. Like, it absolutely changes you. So if you've ever met a good old boy who has been saved and nothing changed about him, he didn't understand the gospel. She didn't understand the gospel. Because you can't understand the things I've been preaching for the last eight weeks and it not ramsack every aspect of your life. If the gospel's not changing the way you spend your money... If the gospel's not changing the way you spend your time, if it's not changing the way you raise your family, it hasn't changed you at all. And unless you're changed and you're like Christ, you're lost, brothers and sisters. And when we die, there's heaven 
and there's hell. And there's no place in between. There's nobody who did a good job. There's no, there's no place in heaven if you just did a good job. There's only place in heaven for people who have accepted Christ through faith. And I'm afraid that a lot of times we get most of our theology from, from country songs. And it makes it sound like everybody's okay. You can do what you want through the week and then go to church on Sunday because mama told you to and you're going to be okay. And absolutely nothing could be farther from the truth. And so what I want you to see uh, in the very last section of the sermon is that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so why are the things that good people do not good enough to gain them merit to get into heaven? You following me? Because any of you and I would recognize, hopefully, that there's people out there with a lot more money than we have, and they do a lot more good things with their money than we have resources to do, right? There's people pumping money into Relay for Life. There's pumping people pumping money into AIDS research. They're pumping money into feeding the poor, right? There's a ton of programs that are going on that are funded by people who are good people, good people, but are 100% lost. And I want you to see in the book of Hebrews, this is chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11, 6 says this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so Hebrews says very clearly, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so here's why... Good people's deeds aren't good enough to get them into heaven. Like, apart from original sin, your sin being inherited through Adam. If you have all kinds of money and you give your money to feed the poor because it makes you feel good, then you are at the throne of your heart because you're doing something good to make you feel good. Right? If you're giving money to the poor to house and feed the poor... Because you care about the poor and you want to see them taken care of, well, then you've just put the poor and the needy at the throne of your heart and you're doing it for them. And this is sin. Hear me out. The things that we do are supposed to be for the glory of God. Like everything about you is to be worship to God. And so when a Christ follower gives money to the poor, because it's what God's called him to do and he's honoring God. He's doing it with different motives. And Christ and God are on the throne of his heart. And they're out of a love for God doing good things. You with me? And so it's possible to do good things. But if you're doing them for the wrong motives, it's no good. It's sinful. Like, good things have to be done with the right motives. And they have to be done out of faith in God and out of a heart for God. I hope I didn't lose you on any of that. But so often we see the good things that people are doing and we go, well, that person's doing better things than us. Well, sometimes they may be doing better things than us, but they're doing it with the wrong motives and not out of a heart of faith. And that doesn't gain you any spiritual merit when it comes to the things of God. The only thing that gets you merit in the things of God is stepping out in faith and following Christ. With me? Good deal. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that he has accomplished everything that we couldn't. Father, I pray that we would have a biblical understanding of what is good and what isn't good. 
And Father, I pray that in our heart of hearts that we would realize that you are the only one that's good. And Father, I pray that we would not be confused when we call someone good, but that we would understand the spiritual realities of the world around us. Father, if there's anyone here who has lived an outstanding life but has missed you, Lord, I pray today would be the day that they come to you in faith, that they put their faith in your death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, that you would save them of their sins. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart for the community around us. Lord, I pray that we would... I pray that we would wear out the knees in our pants praying for those lost. Lord, I pray that we would be on our faces in prayer begging you to save the souls of good people. Father, I pray that we would also put that same effort in prayer towards you saving the lives of people who society says are bad people. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't see any difference between the two of them except for their souls in need of a Savior. Father, I pray that when these individuals get saved as a result of your mighty work in our prayers, Lord, I pray that we would be eager to forgive them of anything in their past as a church. And Father, I pray the glory that results would all be for your glory and honor. And so, Father, if there's anyone here who'd like to make a decision to follow you, Lord, I pray that during this invitation that you would give them the courage to do so. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with us for our hymn of invitation. Well, it's good to worship with you all again. Always enjoy seeing you each and every Sunday. Uh, I want to remind you that if there's there's anyone hearts, if there's anyone whose heart you're broken for uh, because they're a good person, you're praying for their salvation, we pray every Wednesday night for our lost friends and family members. And that would be a great time to come and get plugged into one of what I think is the greatest outreaches of our church. And that's praying for our lost friends and family members. Um, we're Windsor, North Carolina, gang. Uh, there's not a whole lot of new folks moving into town. We're not gonna, we don't have any military bases close by, so there's, there's not a large influx of people. If we're gonna reach the lost world around us, it's gonna be our friends and family members and folks that are good folks. They're just missing Christ. And so, uh, if, if this week has, has meant anything to you, if the Lord's speaking to your heart, come on Wednesday night and uh, pray with us. After our Wednesday night uh, Heaven series is over, we're going to be spending more time in prayer on Wednesday nights, just so you have a heads up and uh, kind of ramping up our prayer ministry a little bit. Before you go, our WMU uh, had a blood drive on Wednesday. They had a goal of 20 pints of blood. They got 28 pints. They said it's the best one that they remember. Uh, I saw a bunch of you out there donating, so thank you uh, for helping make their uh, blood donation a big uh, success. Let's close in prayer. I'm going to ask... Sorry, we had a joke in Sunday school about something that just came back to mind. Ron Miller, would you close us in prayer?